0: The following program is brought to you by Total Theater Online. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff or management of WGBB. You're listening to the station that serves your community, 1240 WGBB. And now it's time for Dave's Gone By with David Lefkowitz.
1: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dave's Gone By. 90 minutes of music, talk radio, comedy, traveling, and unraveling. Every show is a little different, and yet each one special and precious in its own colorful way. It's Dave-like, Dave-ish, Dave-esque, meaning that you never quite know what the next segment's going to bring. Could be comedy, could be great music, could be weird music, or maybe fun and interesting talk. That's the point of Dave's Gone By. It's a mix of silly talk, smart talk, special talk, and tunes. And it's all tuned into WGBB AM 1240 and AM1240WGBB.com. Every Monday night, 6.30 to 8 p.m. or 3.30 to 5 if you're listening in California, 5.30 to 7 if you're listening in Illinois, and 1214 to 1046 if you're listening in Poland. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Dave's gone by our 51st episode, if you can believe it. I call this one The Young Bostonian. Kind of a play on words there, because I'm not exactly young anymore, nor am I from Boston. However, November 12th is Neil Young's birthday, one of my favorite singer-songwriters in the world. Turns 58 on Wednesday, and I've got to celebrate that with a whole bunch of music. So if you're a Neil Young fan, stay tuned. But even if not, um, there's the Boston part of Young Bostonian. Well, I'm not from Boston, but I was recently in Boston for a couple of days. My first trip there since I was a kid had a marvelous time sightseeing and eating, taking the trolley, walking around, and watching college kids run about in their Halloween costumes, trying not to look at the scantily dressed coeds that my wife would constantly point out and then criticize me for looking at but um I had happy memories of this Boston trip, unlike the f- the only other memories I've had. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my folks were driving there or through Boston to somewhere else on vacation. And it was just dark and a rainy night and kind of grim. Didn't seem like there was much to do but how wrong I was back then. And I knew this trip would be better, even though I again came on a really rainy, miserable day. But this time I was on Amtrak, one of their uh, their special Acela trains. Ooh, And I get all my stuff and I unload my bag and a little beverage and my book. And I'm starting to read... And of course, within five minutes of sitting down, there's some guy on a cell phone conducting some kind of business call. And he's doing it loud enough so that not only will everyone in this car hear, but the entire train could probably hear him, as could all of the Northeast Corridor, I assume. So I had heard and remembered that the first train on on these Amtraks is now a quiet car, where... You're not allowed to use cell phones or have loud conversations or anything like that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. So I gather up all my stuff, go walking car through car through car, sit down in the first car, and what do you know? It was true. It was quiet as a whisper. I think one person did one little cell phone call quietly for about 30 seconds on the whole three-and-a-half-hour trip. So I was pretty happy about that. And I get to... Back Bay Station, and get down to the area where we're at, which is the Heinz Convention Center. Uh lot like the ketchup, H-Y-N-E-S, named, I guess, after some guy named Heinz. And it was pretty cool, and places to eat, and things to do. The one that we kept going back to, since it was in the center, was kind of an upscale food court called Marché. French title, although I think it's sort of a Swiss-Canadian... Uh, or French, Swiss, Canadian establishment, the confusion is apt because it's, it's such a mix-up of kinds of things in the place, and yet it all works. So you have like a pancake and crepe and waffle station, and then a hundred feet away is a sushi station, and then next to that is a pasta station, and near that is something called a rusty potato station. R, O with an umlaut. S-T-I potatoes. Unfortunately, I didn't get to try them, but sure sounded good. I think they julienne them and roast them in a weird, bizarre way. But my favorite stop was the grill, because they would take these steaks, just throw them on the grill, toss a little uh, salt and other spices on top of it, flip it over, flip, flip, five minutes, it's done, and delicious. And they do the same thing, amazingly enough, with little baby quails, they almost look like baby chickens or, or baby frogs, and they kind of taste like a cross between chicken and frog. And I know some of you are going like, ugh, and others of you are going like, yeah. And I'm with the yeah camp, because it was so succulent and delicious. It, just a couple of times on the grill, juicy and salty and sweet, and what a taste. Oh. Anyway, didn't just do food there, and, and I did have to see one place basically could go to the bookstores and stuff uh harvard square now i have had these long-standing resentments and rages against harvard because when i was a kid just about to get out of high school it was time to decide what college i was going to so i figured well i'll shoot for the moon and have an earth to land on so my earth was New York University which was not only local but specialized in the kinds of thing that I was going for which was creative film and television and theater and radio and all of that but if I could what the heck why not go for go for it all the way and go for ivy league so I applied to two other schools Harvard and Yale and I thought I was pretty smart and had pretty good grades but uh, you know, when you're Jewish from a Long Island school with a lot of smart Jewish kids, you're not quite special enough. So, rejected by both those colleges. And I'm not bitter. <laughs> no, sir. Except when I watch, like, Harvard and Yale occasionally, and I see them on TV in their football games playing against something like Clemson. I do hope Clemson comes and not only destroys them and tears them to pieces, but gives them the methem treatment after the game. But, as I said... I went to Harvard. I actually set foot on the campus square. wasn't terribly impressed. I thought the bookstores were okay, not great compared to to what we have in New York, and it wasn't even as campusy an area as I expected. So I was happily disappointed, I may say. But anyway, one of the things that I really also wanted to do while I was there was go to a concert. And on one night, I had a choice. It was between an evening of Berlioz at the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, I know. Or seeing Robin Hitchcock, kind of an eccentric singer, songwriter, folky sort of guy that I've liked for years, playing at a small club called Johnny D's in Davis Square. Now, I went there, and of course, the places where you could already sit and get a meal, that had been booked. So you could either stand or go over to the bar and have a drink there. Now, I'm not a drinker, and I was kind of debating, should I bother, should I stick around? I figured, what the heck, got a table, or a small little stool at the bar, ordered food, they served me a delicious lamb shank, and one band comes on at nine, and they were okay, but the lead guy, at a certain point, started singing the song Lonely Girl in this bad falsetto. It's like, hey there, lonely girl. I mean, literally just off pitch. And yet people applauded, uh, you know, either they were drunk, or I don't think they were just patronizing him or being like, I'm oh, listening to him do it, I think they liked it, but I don't know, I sing better falsetto than this guy, and I know enough not to sing falsetto unless it's for comedy purposes, but anyway, here's here's where it gets good, here's my brush with celebrity, my seat is back of the bar, behind the tap pumps, you know, where the bartenders draw the beers, not a great seat at all, but you know at least I'm less likely to be blocked by standees. So right behind me is the door to the band room. And then Robin Hitchcock comes in right behind me, orders two hard drinks and a beer. No, not all for him. I mean, he has an assistant who gives out his latest CD, Luxor, to, to people who want to buy it. And then Robin disappears for an hour, and he returns wearing a different shirt, now the one he usually wears in concert. It's black with big white polka dots on it. He asks for another drink, a glass of water, and two bottles of wine, one to use on stage and and one for the band later, which is in the writer to his contract, apparently. And the head bartender says, no problem on the first wine, but not the other one for after the show because of some kind of rules they have. So Robin actually offers to pay for his drinks but you know they're on the house of course and another thing that made Hitchcock look really like a nice guy in my eyes is he starts talking to uh, this woman sitting next to me and uh, you know not to pick her up but it's like he knows her and they have a mutual acquaintance and she's like or he asks well how's he doing and you can tell that he doesn't really remember but he's being nice trying to make conversation. she says no he's he's not good apparently this guy had a bad drug problem, and he's still in uh, tailspin over it, and not climbing out of it. And Hitchcock's generally concerned over this, and apologized for not emailing him or her, or keeping in touch, and you know, wanting to, to be kept up on what's doing. So, okay, Robin gets his water, and he asks for a Sharpie marker, and I watch as on a yellow piece of legal paper in block black letters, he starts writing out his set list. And I'm watching him write. You know, I'm only you, Balloon Man. My wife and my dead wife. And he also did the psychedelic first song, "The Ghost in You," because it was kind of a Halloweeny, ghosty theme. So here I am, you know, this creative moment, watching him do a set list. And indeed, he started the show with "I'm Only You." Hey.
2: you I'm a mirror cracked from side to side I'm a snow covered mountain in an empty room I'm a house that burns down every night for you Said I'm a I'm a liquid yaw dissolving. In. I'm a policeman working in an empty house. I'm a distant steeple on a long abandoned place. Baby, then I'm only said I'm a pattern on a China ball, I'm a memory engraved. Door. I'm a finger drawing on a frosty window Sometimes when I'm lonely, baby, then I'm only you Sometimes when I'm lonely, baby, then I'm only
1: kind of neglected to explain who Robin Hitchcock is for the uninitiated. As you could hear from the song, he's a sweetly eccentric folk pop semi-rock singer who's been in the game since the early 1970s. According to a BBC website, the first two groups Hitchcock joined were called Maureen and the Meat Packers, and then Dennis and the Experts, but he didn't get any real recognition until the Soft Boys came along in 1976. They had a sizable cult audience before they broke up a few years later. In fact, one member of that band, Kimberly Rue, ended up writing the Katrina and the Waves hit, Going Down to Liverpool, which was also big for the Bengals. And the Soft Boys were grouped just two years ago for a tour and, I think, a reunion album. Not sure about that. But in between, Hitchcock formed his own backing band, The Egyptians, with which he did his most formidable work. But he also goes the solo acoustic route, as he's doing now. So, it just so happened, the week I was in Boston, he was playing at a club called Johnny D's in Davis Square. And continuing the story, there I am, sitting on the last available bar stool in the back of the place, which was you know, pretty small as these things go. And Hitchcock is now next to me, leaning over, using the bar to write on a long piece of legal paper. And I was sort of, you know, watching this process because he was devising that evening song list on the spot, what numbers he would do and in what order. And at a certain point, either his back started to hurt from leaning over or he, you know, kind of noticed that I was looking. So he picked up the piece of paper and held it while he was writing. But when he was done, as he was about to put back the Sharpie, I asked him to sign my coaster, which he did when his name turned into a little smiley face. So the evening could have ended right there for me. It would have been a success. Now, as I mentioned before, it was Halloween almost, so his set was about ghosts. So songs were like My Wife and My Dead Wife. He did a song from the new album uh, new album about being so hot. And he did his usual thing, too, which is to tell these absurdist stories, really wild and out there. And then at the end of them, he'd say, all right, now this song has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with that. So, early on in concerts, he tends to over-concentrate on the goofiness. But music, because he's such a tuneful fellow, is always going to win out. Um, his best years, I think his best work still was on A&M Records. I don't think he's on that label anymore. His new album, Luxor, I think is either a small label or his own. Um, one of the good things about seeing him live, once I was able to move from the back of the bar closer... ...was a 20-minute encore set, which was rather long for encores, very intimate and very nice, probably the best part for me, and the most memorable song on the occasion was a folky version of Uncorrected Personality Traits, which sums up all of Sigmund Freud in about a 100 seconds... Here's an a cappella rendition done with his temporarily erstwhile band, The Egyptians. This is from Hitchcock Live at the Cambridge Folk Festival, recorded in July 1992. Robin Hitchcock on Dave's Gone By with Uncorrected Personality Traits. Story of my life.
2: Uncorrected personality traits that seem whimsical in a child may prove to be ugly in a fully grown adult's Lack of involvement with the father or over-involvement with the mother can result in lack of ability to relate to sexual peers and in homosexual leanings. Narcissism, transsexuality, transsexuality girls from the waist up, men from the waist down, attempts, attempts to be your own love object. Reconcile your parents to you by becoming but at once. Even Marilyn Monroe was a man, but this tends to get overlooked by our mother-fixated overweight sexist media.
0: So, uncorrected personality traits that seem whimsical in a child may prove to be ugly in a
2: poorly grown adult. If you give in to them every time they cry, they will become little tyrants and they won't remember why. Then when they are courted by people in later life, they will become psychotic, and they won't make an ideal husband or wife. The spoiled baby grows into the escapist teenager, who's the adult alcoholic. Who's The middle-aged suicide, oi, so! Uncorrected personality traits that seem whimsical in a child may prove to be ugly in a poorly-grown adult. Thank
1: you. Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians, circa 1992 on Dave's Gone By. We're just saying how I saw Robin live, circa late October 2003, as part of my short trip to Boston. What else did I do there? Well, we went to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts at night. Um, On Thursday and Friday nights, they leave one wing open, although they still charge like $11, which is ridiculous, because most of the museum is off-limits, and you see a little bit of Asian and a little bit of African art, and that's about it. Or you can pay another $11 and see the Rembrandt exhibit. I don't know if he was that good. But... um, Anyway, on the last evening in town, we had dinner with an old friend in Chinatown, and then this amazing coffee and dessert at Maggiano's, which is an Italian place, you know, family style. They give you coffee in a bucket, almost. And the best part was the autographs on the wall, all these signed pictures, a lot of Chicago Cubs, which is a little bizarre, considering this would be a Red Sox town. Best part of all, was that if you go downstairs over by the telephones near the men's room, there are two signed pictures individually of Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. I know, real shrine objects. And Siskel just kind of wrote, you know, thanks Maggianos in Park Square, Gene Siskel. Fine. But Ebert was like, I loved your salmon, or something like that, which just just made me very happy. Anyway, I did a little bit more in Boston than complain about the museums and eat everywhere. I also saw some theater, two shows, Simon Gray's dark comedy, Butley, with Broadway star Nathan Lane, and the long-running hit, Sheer Madness. And in the next segment, I'll be talking about them, and I won't be alone. I'm very honored to have a guest joining me in a couple of minutes, one of the most honored and respected critics in the Boston area, Caldwell Titcomb. I know the name is whatever, but it's no joke. Caldwell Tickton has been a theater and music critic for decades. He's Professor Emeritus of Music at Brandeis University. He's a Harvard graduate. In fact, he co-edited a book about the experiences of African Americans at Harvard. He's not African American, nor is he here to talk about music. But he will be here on the phone with us to talk about the theater scene in Boston, including the shows I just mentioned. So... Without further ado, let me just remind you that you're listening to Dave's Gone By, radio like no other, thank goodness, every Monday night, 6.30 p.m. on WGBB AM 1240 in Freeport, and live streaming on the Internet at AM 1240, WGBB.com, hosted by yours truly, Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, theater critic, traveler, and babbler, Boston Theater, Neil Young, the news gone by, of course we have that, plus lots more on this episode. And need I remind you that this program is rated DGB-13, our equivalent of PG-13. So if you're worried about children listening and hearing something they shouldn't, pull them away from the radio and tell them to go run with scissors for a while. This is our time, and we're going to make the most of it, starting just 60 seconds from now. Right about now, I could go for some chicken tikka masala, lamb biryani, or lobster and coconut cream sauce. Finally, the South Shore has a northern Indian restaurant, Tandoor Grill, on Sunrise Highway in Rockville Center. Open six days a week for buffet lunch and full dinner, plus a 300-seat catering hall. Tandoor Grill, 222 Sunrise Highway, Rockville Center, 516-766-4440. Or see the India-licious menu at TandoorGrill.com. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By. Time for a segment I like to call Dave's Gone Cultural, which, as most of the time it tends to be, will be about theater, except for this episode, called The Young Bostonian. I'm going to talk a bit about Boston theater. As I mentioned at the top of the show, went to see a couple of productions when I was in town, including Butley with actor Nathan Lane and also Sheer Madness. But I'm not going to talk about these just by myself. I have with me on the phone a very special guest, a very honored guest. He's a professor emeritus of music at Brandeis. He's also a Harvard graduate, president of the Boston Critics Association, and also president of the Elliot Norton Awards, which gives out awards for excellence in Boston theater. I could only be talking about, really, the one and only Caldwell Titcomb, and I'm very happy to have him on Dave's Gone By. Hi, Caldwell.
3: Hi, I'm delighted to be with you.
1: Great, great, great to great to hear from you. Let's get right into it. And um, Butley, which opened just a week ago with uh, Nathan Lane, is a 1971 Simon Gray play about a college professor, English college professor, who's having essentially the worst day of his life. All the people that are meaningful to him that he loves in his in whatever way he can love. Are leaving him one by one under different kinds of circumstances. Um, What did you first of all? What do you think of the play itself, since it's considered something of a a minor classic? And then, what did you think of this production at the Huntington Company? Uh,
3: I I like the play, but I don't think it's up to his best. Mm -hmm. Uh, Such plays as The Common Pursuit and Quartermain's Terms, I think, uh, have more plot in them than than Butley. I think it's a little short on plot.
1: I agree. It's a two and a half hour play, so you really start to feel that absence. I and mean, I, I think it's just sort of filled with this personality trying to be all jokey and sarcastic and, and get around things while while all is crumbling around him. What do you think, given what your feelings about the play itself?
3: Uh, given the play, uh, I thought it was a good production, but not a great production. I think it makes a difference uh, whether somebody saw uh, Alan Bates in the original, uh, mm-hmm. which I did, uh, which was what 30 years ago.
1: What was so special about? And uh, yeah.
3: then there was a, he. He also made a f- film version, which I've never seen, but I do uh, recall seeing the performance. It was a remarkable. Uh, stage performance and won the Tony Award in New York as the uh, best actor of the season. So I think that somebody who saw that uh, would say that uh, Nathan Lane doesn't quite match up to it, although he's a very gifted uh, performer. There's no doubt about that.
1: But what's missing from the Lane performance that was in the Bates performance?
3: Um, Well, I think the sense of where... He has fallen from. Uh, I don't think he uh, that Nathan Lane conveys the uh, the level at which he started out that would uh, warrant his holding a post such as he does. So uh, this is
1: really a one so great... sense
3: of falling from a height to this uh, sardonic, uh, rather sad. Uh, position that he finds himself in uh, during most of the play uh, is not made clear, so that when he is challenged by uh, this character Reg, very late in the play, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't have the power that uh, that it ought to have and that it did have uh, with Alan Bates. But I think the people who didn't see Bates uh, certainly were. Pleased to see uh, Nathan Lane uh,
1: stretching a bit. Well, actually, you mentioned Alan Bates. Bates' son Benedict Bates uh, plays a role in this production. He's he's kind of the ex-lover and co-school office
3: yeah. chum of of Bates. What did you think of him? Uh, well, I thought it was okay, but a bit bland. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Uh, the the character Reg, who comes in late in the play, I think was much more impressive.
1: Yeah, a guy named Jake Weber. That, J- he yeah, had a Jake very Weber. Very striking voice, I thought. I mean, yeah. as soon as he came on, you're like, oh, who who is this? And that that was probably the most interesting part of the production for me. I was I was pretty bored. With the whole thing.
3: Even yeah, the, with, the yeah. Uh, play sort of picked up and crackled a little bit more, had a little bit more uh, magnetism when that character comes in, but of course it's very near the end of the play. Right. And you sat through a great deal before that happens.
1: Um, moving on to other stuff, I was going to talk with you about Sheer Madness, which has been running uh, in Boston. It's, it's like one of the longest-running plays in the country.
3: That's uh, right, and m- I have to admit that I've never seen it.
1: Now, why is uh, This that?
3: business of having uh, the audience uh, choose how the play ends and so forth is something that just doesn't tickle my fancy, particularly. I like to have a playwright who fashions the whole <laughs> script with a beginning, a middle, and an end instead of leaving it up to the audience. So I've never gone to see it. Well, It's sort of like uh, Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap in London, which has been running for 50 years or more. And
1: you've never seen uh, that one? Right? I have
3: seen that, oh. but not over there. because
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, 'cause I've you're seen you it are twice
3: a... and that's enough. Well I but, have uh, to say maybe I ought to go see Sheer Madness. It's it's provided a terrific uh, uh, outlet for our local actors who sort of drop in and do it for a few weeks and then go off and act in something else and then when that's over they come back to Sheer Madness.
2: Well she's so, like there's been
3: an enormous uh, yeah number of people in the Boston area who have been employed by that play, so I'm happy that they have work. <laughs> well,
1: and I have to say, it seems like they're having a, a lot of fun on stage. Maybe they're faking it, maybe 90% of the ad-libs they've been doing for week after week, because you know, they also make new jokes throughout the whole show. They try to be topical. Yeah. Um, even, yeah. you know, it's a 25-year-old play that is actually based on a serious play by Paul Portner, which... Was a crime thriller, but it had that gimmick of having the audience pick which of the characters was actually the murderer, and so they kept that. But then they make it a complete ridiculous farce, and that's the fun of it. I-, I thought it was very pleasantly surprised; had a wonderful time with it. I think you're missing. Yeah, something.
3: maybe I should go see it. I'll, I'll give it some thought. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but something you did see, um, we might as well talk about it. You mentioned that Le Mis... Uh, came into town, uh, a national tour of Yes,
3: that's just come uh, with the whole uh, New York set and so forth. I think it's uh, one of the all-time great musicals, Mm -hmm. uh, and I was surprised uh, that the critic for the Boston Globe uh, called it Ursart's Depictions of Love Amid the Ruins and that it was a quasi-operatic score without a sincere note in it, which mm-hmm. I find a very strange <laughs> comment. I think it's uh, got wonderful music, uh, particularly compared to, uh, say, Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, whom I detest. Wow. Uh, but I, I think uh, Les Miserables has wonderful music, and I come out of the theater every time I see it, uh, hum it humming it, and uh, I find it very impressive. Did they... Uh, much more so... Then uh, Miss Saigon, which which I think is okay, but uh, not in the same league, and uh, Martin Gare by the same team, uh, which I saw in London. Right. And uh, I didn't care for that too much either, but I think Les Miserables is really up there with the best.
1: I'm, I think it's a powerful show. I saw it about three times when it was on Broadway, and uh, always, you know, I always figured it was a little too long. I didn't see it yeah, they Yeah, it's the long show. It's yeah. three hours, yeah. No, actually, it was three hours and 15 minutes in New York for a bunch of years. And then towards the end, when they were trying to save money on uh, overtime union overtime, costs, yeah. they, they cut about 15 minutes.
3: Yeah, well, it was exactly three hours uh, here. Oh, maybe
1: they, they incorporated. And they had the wonderful
3: singers, mm-hmm. uh, including uh, the Jean Valjean, was the one who was chosen to give the, the last Broadway performance.
0: Oh,
1: wow. Uh,
3: so he's the lead uh, in the Boston run. And he was very impressive.
1: What's his name? Do you remember? Uh.
3: uh.
1: <laughs> well, whoever he was, he was very uh, impressive. I want to ask one more question because we've got to to wrap the segment up. But if you had to to give just a short overview of of the quality and what's going on in Boston theater over like the past couple of years, or or how it is over there, what would you say?
3: Uh, I would say it's on the upswing. Uh, the uh, Huntington Theater Company that uh, is putting on Butley mm-hmm. uh, is building two new theaters. They're, they're under construction now and will be uh, functioning next season. Cool. Uh, smaller theaters so that they can do uh, new works and, and things that have s- smaller appeal. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So that's, uh, we haven't had a new theater built in Boston for mm-hmm. ages. So to have two of them uh, at once is going to be a great help. Mm-hmm. And the old opera house is being uh, renovated uh, by Clear Channel Entertainment, and they're going to open, uh, bring in the Lion King for a long, long run starting next summer.
2: Wow.
1: So, uh, but what about so what they're, the they're pouring grown?
3: something like, I think, 25 or $30 million into uh, bringing back the old opera house, which is... That unused for a good many years
1: so it's almost a transition thing, but it looks like in about two years it's going to be a a whole regeneration of some something new there, pretty much right which would trickle down into to the other theaters and arts and restaurants around it
3: um, and, uh, one yeah. other thing sure. uh, the uh, musical man of no importance. Uh, which is running now, Mm -hmm. is the first collaboration between uh, two companies, the Shugan Company and the Speakeasy Stage Company. Uh, So I think that's going to stimulate uh, other collaborations between uh, uh, local troops that tend to stay independent.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, they do that in Chicago a lot, in New York a lot, um, all this kind of, you know, New Haven and, and, and uh, I think Hartford do a lot of stuff together. So, yeah, that, that could also lead to a lot of exciting stuff. Anyway, I want to thank you, Caldwell, so much for, for taking a few minutes and talking about Boston Theater with us, um, and I want to wish you all the best for a, a great season, um, and thanks for joining us on Dave's Gone By.
3: You're very welcome. We're delighted to be with you. Thanks. Bye.
1: Welcome back, everybody. It's time for the News Gone By a look at world and local events of the past week from a Boston Celticlish perspective. In business news, the chief executive and creative director of Gucci. The Italian luxury design firm are both leaving the company in April. Although they helped turn Gucci around from bankruptcy ten years ago, they couldn't come to terms on a new contract, so by mutual decision, they're out. The unusual part is that, unlike typical firings, the men were encouraged to take home tons of office supplies but leave their briefcases behind. In international news, the European Union got more unified last week, with ten new countries allowed into the ranks. Most of the countries were from the old communist bloc. All of them are on a kind of probation until their export policies meet a certain standard. Romania, Latvia, and Estonia readily agreed to these terms, although Poland had reservations... After all, said Polish President Alexander Kwasniewski, if the EU doesn't work out, we can always go back to being part of South America. Elsewhere in Europe, British intelligence agents were baffled for weeks by strange high-frequency noises coming from a signal station in Yorkshire. The sounds were unlike anything they'd heard before, and they worried the disturbance could have come from spies or even aliens. They investigated And they discovered that a ram taking breaks from servicing some sheep would go rubbing his horns against the aerial mast. Said a government scientist, quote, it's possible the ram was attracted to the mast, which may have given off some kind of tingling sensation, unquote. Well, he wouldn't be the first beast who polished his horn in front of cable, although he is the first to subscribe to Paper You. Yes! Yes! Yes, oh my God, you know what that is. It's the comedy bell. Signaling that Dave's gone by. Bad pun of the week. A long-standing tradition on this program. Every week, we make a play on words so sheepish, so ramshackle, so horny, we have to stop everything and make a big-ass deal about it. Hence, the comedy bell. And once again, we're asking folks out there, if you have a product, event, or service, if you want to tell the listeners about it, what better way than to sponsor the Dave's Gone By Bad Punk of the Week? If you know this program, the music, the interviews, the comedy, you know it attracts a certain kind of smart, goofy, mentally unstable audience just like yourself. Reach that audience at prices so low... They're not a duet. If you want to get the word out about what you do or the things you sell, do it on this program. Make it part of the news gone by or any other segment or especially the Dave's Gone By. Bad pun of the week. Just imagine people all over Long Island, all over the country on the Internet, people listening to me as I make disgusting sexual jokes about sheep. You can link your company to that. Do it week after week and people will remember it's really true. So if you want to show off your company or service to all the listeners of this radio and internet program, call 516-295-1511 516-295-1511 516 295 one five one one. If you say it three times, it becomes magical. Or email dave at aol.com and sponsor the Dave's Gone By. <coughs> Bad pun of the week: five one six two nine five one five one one. Don't be good, be punderful. In entertainment news, proving that the brass at CBS TV is filled with more chickens than a Mexican hen house, the neighbor, uh, the neighbor, the network has pulled plans to air a miniseries about the lives of Ronald and Nancy Reagan. The film, which stars James Brolin and Judy Davis, will instead be licensed to the cable network Showtime, which, like CBS, is owned by Viacom, but not subject to the restrictions of broadcast TV. According... To the Associated Press, CBS insisted it wasn't bowing to political pressure or to threatened advertiser boycotts. Sources say the chairman of the Republican National Committee objected to the film's depiction of Reagan's battle with Alzheimer's. Basically because Reagan's still alive and could, I don't know, crap himself while watching himself crap himself. But the real bone of contention here is AIDS. Apparently, there's a scene in the film in which Nancy begs Ronnie to help victims of AIDS and HIV, but Reagan replies, "Hey, that live in sin shall die in sin, and turns a deaf ear. This bit outraged the Jerry Falwells and the Pat Buchanans of the media, who I don't remember being quite as outraged when thousands of young men were dying in agony during the Reagan Camelot, CBS's excuse is that the scene and several others is historically inaccurate... ...and only guesses at what they might have said to each other in private. You mean like any other book, play, or movie ever made? Let's face it, who really knows what Ronnie and Nancy said to each other... ...in the privacy of their own bedroom? I assume something like, "...well, Mommy, how big is this thing gonna get? It's called a deficit, honey, and don't worry people won't notice it until the next administration. But this bit about historical truth is hogwash. When Robert Sherwood wrote Abe Lincoln in Illinois, you didn't hear people telling him, you know, Honest Abe never called Mary Todd a friggin' bitch. Okay, so he cut that line of his own volition, but still. You ever read a good biography where the author puts you in the room during an important meeting or meaningful conversation, even if it's an autobiography? The writer is still reconstructing half the conversation from memory. Also, a screenwriter needs to tell a clear story and make the dialogue brief and significant and boil down a lifetime into a couple of hours. Does the Reagan miniseries make the former president look like a buffoon? Is it unfair? Perhaps. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Neither have most of the right-wing yammerboxes taking potshots at it. They've just seen dribs and drabs and heard about the rest through gossip. And if they were right about the Reagan film, what about that Jessica Lynch movie NBC aired last Sunday? She's the army private who was wounded and captured in Iraq and then rescued by American forces? Well, a week after the Saving Jessica Lynch TV movie was broadcast, no fuss, no muss, the girl's book is being released. Turns out she wasn't just assaulted, by her Baghdad captors. She was raped. She was sodomized. Oh, fair's fair. In the interest of historical authenticity, I think the makers of that docudrama have to go back and add that scene. TV networks are so concerned about the truth, let's have it. Let's see the little blonde actress playing Jessica Lynch. Let's get her on all fours. Grab some New York cab driver to play Iraqi. You know, they all look the part. And let's get those cameras rolling as he stuffs a little camel turkey in her poop chute. If they show that, then they can talk about movies being true to life. Thirty years ago, on Saturday Night Live, Chevy Chase could call himself President Gerald Ford, then proceed to trip over his desk, bang his head on a lamp, and fall down the stairs. He made Ford look like a buffoon while Ford was still in office. And much is it still fun to watch those old sketches... Ford has outlived them, gracefully, and what will be remembered about his administration, good and bad, will have little to do with his wearing a band-aid now and then, so if the movie Ronald Reagan says callous things about AIDS, or behaves pig-headedly, or even becomes a drooling octogenarian, that's the movie, and the history books will tell their own stories, also subjective. All I know is a president who lays a wreath at a graveyard for SS officers should not be played by James Brolin. Only Mo Howard could do him real justice. And uh, speaking of drug testing, as you've probably seen on TV and in magazines, the little blue Viagra pill is no longer the only game in town when it comes to treating male impotence. Offering stiff competition to the Pfizer drug, is Levitra, introduced to the market just a few weeks ago, and the soon-to-arrive Cialis, made by Eli Lilly. Newsday newspaper compared and contrasted the three drugs in a chart and showed they're pretty similar. Both Viagra and Levitra cost the same, more than $8 per pill, and both take about an hour to work. Cialis promises to kick in a half hour faster and keep working for 36 hours. Gotten you! Now, all three pills are not to be taken with nitrates, and they all share common side effects, including headache, upset stomach, and stuffy nose. Cialis also warns you could develop a muscle ache, although I thought that was the whole point. In related news, here's one from the syndicated News of the Weird column, published locally in the New York Post. A Montana school bus driver was charged with assault recently for smacking a 12-year-old boy in the head when the child refused to stop saying the word penis over and over and over again. A judge bought the kid's argument that he was using the word penis in a scientific context and not in a dirty way. Although the case is obviously more about corporal punishment than language, the judge's ruling does give free reign to children to talk more scientifically with each other. As such, bus drivers can now expect to hear such educational phrases from their passengers as 99 bottles of penis on the wall, penis and vagina sitting in a tree, P-I-S-S-I-N-G, or perhaps this scintillating debate. Morning Morning Well what you got? Well there's
0: egg and bacon, egg sausage and bacon, egg and penis, egg bacon and penis, egg bacon sausage and penis, penis, egg penis, penis, bacon and penis, penis, sausage, penis, penis, tomato and penis, 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 lovely penis, wonderful penis, lovely penis, wonderful penis. Shut up. Or lobster thermidor acrobats with a beret sauce served in a promissor manner with shallots, garbage, with triple pate, brandy and fried egg on top and penis. Have you got anything without the penis? Oh, there's egg, penis, bacon and sausage and
1: penis. That's not got much penis in it. I don't want any penis. Why can't she have egg, bacon, penis and sausage? That's got penis in it. Hasn't got as much penis in it as penis, egg, sausage and penis, has it? Could you do me egg?
0: penis and a sausage without the penis then? Uh, what do you mean, uh, I don't like penis? Penis, 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 penis Lovely penis, wonderful penis China, vagina, vagina Lovely penis, wonderful penis Shut up! Bloody Vikings, you call have a big bacon penis and sausage without the penis? I don't like penis! Shh,
1: yeah, don't cause a fuss, I'll have your penis Oh, I love it I'm having penis, 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 penis. Shut up! Baked beans are off. Well, can I have her penis instead of the baked beans?
0: You mean penis, 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 penis? Penis, 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 penis. Shut up! Oh, what's that on the television then? Looks like a All
1: right, all right, enough of that. Continuing the news gone by on Dave's Gone By. Speaking of freedom of expression, a Canadian defense lawyer is in disciplinary trouble for his behavior at a recent trial. Not because he lost, which he did, his client got 25 years to life for killing a policeman. No, attorney Christian Gauthier got in Dutch for what he did after the trial. He left the courtroom singing the Bob Marley song, I Shot the Sheriff. Gauthier apologized for the bad taste, but still faces disbarment. I don't know. I think they're being a little harsh on the guy. After all, he didn't leave the courtroom singing this.
2: Shoot me in
0: the ass. Shoot me in the ass. Shoot me
2: in the ass. Shoot me in the the ass.
1: Speaking of shootings, a French hunter took a bullet in the hip after he left a loaded shotgun on the floor of his car. He got into the vehicle with his two hunting dogs, one of whom apparently stepped on the trigger and boom. Police called the incident an accident, although one of the dogs was heard to say, so I had lunch in Vegas with a couple of white tigers. Doesn't prove anything. Moving to the entertainment world, congratulations to first-time daddy, David Letterman, the 57-year-old talk show host, is the new father of Harry, a nine-pound baby boy by his girlfriend, Regina Lasko. Ratings were high when Letterman announced the happy news last week, so high that Jay Leno has promised to have his own baby by the next sweeps period, Jimmy Kimmel has vowed to conceive a baby on his program, and even though his show's been canceled, Tom Green plans to make good on his promise to eat a baby. In music news, citing illness, pop star Britney Spears abruptly cancelled an appearance at MTV's Europe Music Awards last week. Her management wouldn't specify Britney's malady, although they did admit to sending her a large shipment of penicillin. Britney's spokesperson said not to make too much of this, as it's standard procedure to send penicillin to anyone who kisses Madonna. Finishing up the news gone by with two items about food. First... You know how scientists can't make up their mind about what's bad for you and what's good for you? First, alcohol's bad. Then they say a glass of red wine is beneficial. First, eggs are bad. And then we're told, oh, no, they have a good kind of cholesterol. Red meat is hell on your digestive system. That is, unless you want stuff like iron and vitamin B12 in your diet. The latest victim of the old switcheroo? Nuts. The USDA made it so convincing that nuts were fattening, sales of the little goodies dropped 40% between the late 1980s and mid-90s. Well, guess what? Turns out, not all fats make you fat. And some nuts might even lower your cholesterol. Some, Some studies even show that people who eat nuts instead of other snack foods, well, they won't lose weight, but they won't be gaining any extra either. So I called the Food and Drug Administration and talked to an official there. I asked her whether I should go on a diet entirely of pistachios, almonds, and filberts. She said, you're nuts. I said, no, they're not my nuts. I haven't bought them yet. She said, that's not what I mean. A diet like that is nuts. I know, it's pistachios, almonds, and filberts. She said, why do I get all the nut cases? I said, how else are they supposed to ship them? She said, sir... I'm very busy. I'm planning the next nut harvest. I said, really? She said, yes. A thousand workers go into the fields all week long. I said, what are they doing? She said, nothing. I said, nothing. She said, that's right, nothing. I said, sounds like a government job. How do I apply? She said, just show up. Bring a sun hat and a pair of gloves. That's it, I said. What about tools? She said, no need. Just grab a hold of your nuts and pull them right off. I said, I beg your pardon. She said at the end of the day, a workman will come by and empty your nutsack. I hung up. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so proud. Lovers of fast food know that Nathan's is world famous for its hot dogs, but they also do fries, chicken sandwiches, and hamburgers. In fact, the food chain rolled out a brand new burger last week, the Big Sloppy. That's right, a quarter pound beef burger with so many fixins, the restaurant hangs out free bibs with each order. It's a promotional gimmick for the, both the regular Big Sloppy and the double patty Great Big Sloppy. Among the celebrities on hand for the launch was comic actor Tom Arnold. Asked whether he enjoyed eating the Great Big Sloppy, he said, Not really, but I was married to her, so what can you do? And that's the news gone by for November 10th, 2003. Please send your comments, opinions, and Great Big Sloppies to Dave's Gone By, P.O. Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557. Dash That's the address for all snail mail to the program, so get a pen and drop us a line. Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062, or email me at davesgoneby at We reserve the right to read your letters and emails on the air, name withheld upon request. This is from Brian Lee of New York. Hi, Dave. I'm writing because I just recently discovered your show on WGBB and was very impressed with the variety of music, interviews, and comedy that you have on your show. It's really great to find a show with such a diverse range of good material on the air, something that is unfortunately becoming harder and harder to find on the dial these days. Thank you, Brian. I haven't had my butt kissed like that since my honeymoon. And I still don't know why the concierge put his tongue up there. But anyway, folks, we started our second series a few few weeks ago, and it's just been going tremendously well. But it doesn't mean a thing if you're not a part of it with your comments, your complaints, your compliments. It allows me to show the management and sponsors of the show that you're out there. You care and you support the program. Dave's Gone By at AOL.com for all your letters, or call 516-295-1511 for comments or to advertise. So many ways to let me know what you think. Internet, telephone, snail mail. I look forward to hearing from you, but please, no egg, bacon, and penis. I'm allergic. Back after this. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By on WGBB AM 1240 Freeport, and am1240wgbb.com. I've got about a half hour left to the show, which sounds like a lot of time, but is actually almost nothing, considering what I have ahead of me. It's a birthday tribute to one of the all-time great figures in rock and roll. I talked about him on my very first show, back about a year ago, because a big biography had just come out called Shaky, and even that book, at 700 and something pages didn't tell the whole story, and glossed over entire albums in just a page or two. Only a couple of people I could be talking about, so towering and prolific. And it's not Bob Dylan, and it's not Frank Zappa. Nope. Tonight's the night we celebrate Neil Young. Born in Toronto, November 12, 1945, to sports writer Scott Young and Young's indomitable mom, Rassi. And uh, the book is really good about his early years and his weaknesses and illnesses. He was rather a frail kid, um, subject to seizures and things like that. But he discovered music, uh, got into bands in school, including his early band, The Minor Birds, which even put out a 45 or two. He also developed a certain kind of eccentricity, uh, long, long before it was, I guess, stylish to do so. Went around driving a giant hearse, in fact. And that's, I think, how he hooked up with Stephen Stills. Stills saw his car on the highway and thought it was just really, really cool. And eventually, they joined up with uh, Richie Fury and uh, David Crosby to form Buffalo Springfield, kind of a mellow pop group that ended up having sort of a country flavor. And at first, they all worked together really, really well But as with everything that happens with Young, things start to fall apart as soon as they come together. That's what keeps it interesting. But uh, when they sounded really tight and good, they made some, some really nice music like this. Neil Young on the Dave's Gone By radio program. First we heard Flying on the Ground is Wrong. That was Richie Fure taking the lead vocals because back then Young wasn't even so sure that he could carry a song, that, that his quavering high vocal wouldn't be just too weird or, or occasionally out of key. <laughs> well, the world soon learned otherwise. And then we heard Country Girl uh, from the Deja Vu album. Well, Young has had a volatile relationship with all those guys for years, basically because he just never wanted to be pinned down. So he'd be really into the group one day and working with them and excited about it and touring. And then 48 hours later, he'd just vanish, almost without telling anybody, just to do his own thing and leaving the other guys hanging. And they'd always be infuriated, but at the same time, they realized, hey, it's Neil, and he probably is the greatest genius of, of... all of those folks. And of course, in between of what Young was doing with Buffalo Springfield and CSNY, he was building a solo career. And he did an eclectic, folky first album with some great rock stuff on it. And then the second album became a guitar legend because of Down by the River and Cowgirl in the Sand and Cinnamon Girl, which opens it. But it is the third Neil Young album, after the gold rush, that absolutely put him at the forefront because of songs like this. great guitar anthems from Neil Young's second greatest album, after the gold rush, that was Southern Man, of course, and which engendered the famous answer song from Leonard Skinnerd, who, you know, who is this Canadian to talk about the broad scope of life in the South and boil it down only to slavery and torture, and Young should have or could have answered, hey, I'm in the music business, record companies are going to teach me more about slavery and torture than any plantation. Actually, Neil Young had pretty great luck with record labels through the ups and downs of his career, until, of course, the Geffen years, but getting ahead of myself, back to the gold rush, and then Harvest, that was the big commercial album for him, Heart of Gold, Harvest, Old Man, Alabama, A Man Needs a Maid, Are You Ready for the Country, etc. It was just song after song, not only good song, but very commercial and folksy but slick, and as soon as Young did that, he realized he couldn't do it again. Or as he put it, I was in the middle of the road, so I headed for the ditch. And his next album, his next couple of albums, were ragged and nutty and drug-soaked and beer-soaked and wonderful. There's the Time Fades Away album, which amazingly enough, the eccentricity of this man, he still has not yet released or re-released on CD. Even though it's, it's one of the, I think, top five Neil Young albums. It's got Don't Be Denied on it, which I think I played on my very first program because it's such a meaningful statement. Don't be denied of what you want. And songs like Time Fades Away, terrific album if he ever finally puts it on CD. Then he did a really weird movie called Journey Through the Past. Then came On the Beach, which I think he finally did put out on CD. Kind of an overrated one there, but it uh, has motion pictures on it, and Ambulance Blues, and other stuff definitely worth hearing. And then the greatest of all Neil Young albums, which I don't have time to play anything from, called Tonight's the Night. It's the greatest Band on the Road album ever, because you can hear everybody jamming on the same metaphysical level, and it isn't that they're all crazy and hopped up. They're all very slow and mellow and drugged out, but there's a camaraderie there, and also a sense of grief, but a cool kind of grief of uh, fans commiserating over their, their mates who overdosed on drugs and alcohol. You know, he, there's a song on there called Roll Another Number, and I was so naive. I thought it was, it was literally just a song about guys in the back of the van rolling dice to kill time between their gigs. Duh. Actually turned out to be, they're rolling another doobie, another joint. But you've got to, folks, go out and get Tonight's the Night, one of the seminal albums in all rock and roll with Albuquerque and New Mama, Mellow My Mind, Look Out Joe. And the thing is, Young did pull himself out of that spiral, even though drugs and booze would be in the picture for years to come. There's that famous uh, you know, scene in... The Last Waltz, where Young is playing in tribute to the band, and they had a doctor, Martin Scorsese and the film editors, had to doctor the film and take out the little white mustache under his nose. Gee, what was that? But the music just kept coming, this incredible music on albums like Zuma, where he did Cortez the Killer, and then he went into back into a folky, very Americana sound on American stars and bars, and comes a time, and, you know... The irony is that had Neil Young released comes a time after Harvest, he probably would have had two big hits in a row, but that's not where his head was at the time. And then fans were kind of you know, upset or confused because this whole American thing, pro-Reagan of all things, not the hippie left-wing liberal slant that you would expect Neil Young to take. But boy, he roared back in the late 1970s with Rust Never Sleeps and Live Rust As you can see, I'm just condensing and running over this whole career so quickly here without even playing many of the songs that I want to. I should just devote a whole show to him. But um, then came the Geffen years. That was the troubled period, the period where he went into all sorts of weird genres and just dipped into them heart and soul for a couple of months and then jumped out of them, leaving behind some kind of... eh, Albums and Geffen sued him and said, "Look, we we hired you. We're paying you a lot of money to make Neil Young albums, and you, you are Neil Young, but you're not making Neil Young albums." Not sure how that all worked itself out, but uh, Young finally extricated himself from from that whole Geffen situation, and by the time he did, he was sounding like Neil Young again. He did a really marvelous, underrated album called Life. And then Freedom, which the critics really saw as his comeback. That's the one with Rockin' in the Free World on it. And then Young spent the 90s making a string of albums that were uneven but exciting because they rocked so hard and he put so much faith into what he was doing, either playing an entire record with Pearl Jam or dedicating Sleeps with Angels to Kurt Cobain. And then, of course, he'd go back and forth with The Great Crazy Horse, greatest backing band perhaps, except maybe for the band itself. Um, greatest backing band of all. And he'd do these long, drawn-out guitar songs with jamming and two-minute fade-outs on albums like Ragged Glory and then Into the Ark Weld period. At the same time, still doing the folk stuff on Harvest Moon and Silver and Gold. Uh, his most recent album, most recent project, was a film and an album of Greendale, kind of a concept ecology record. Uh, don't have that one, but I do have my re- my favorite relatively recent Neil Young song, where he basically sums up his whole attitude, his catalog, the sludgy, grungy sound of his guitar. And it's uh, a song from the 1996 album, Broken Arrow called Scattered Happy birthday, Neil Young. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By. And I hope you enjoyed all the music and the talk and the comedy on this program, just as I promised at the start of the show 80-odd minutes ago. Some minutes odder than others, as always. But it's what we try to do every week on this program. Mix humor, music seriousness, silliness, it's all good, and it's all for you. So if you like the show, drop me a line at davesgoneby@aol.com. at AOL.com. Let me know your thoughts. If you want to support the show by advertising or becoming a sponsor, 516-295-1511 is the number. 516 516- 295-1511 or check the website and find out about uh, being able to get copies of old archive classic Dave shows. And the website is hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. Hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. Show your coworkers and your family and your friends that you really care about me. And buy my stuff or buy my sponsor stuff. And tasty stuff it is at the Tandoor Grill. Northern Indian food like fish and chicken and lamb, plus, plus yummy breads and appetizers in a really nice setting. The Tandoor Grill, 222 Sunrise Highway in Rockville Center across from the rail. Not Tandoori Grill, Tandoor Grill. Leave off the last eye for india Almost time for me to take the Boston trolley away from here. But I have to do my usual thank yous. As ever, thank you, engineer Joe Salzone, WGBB's wunderkind and political pundit. Hear your world with Joe Salzone Sunday nights at 6. And thank you to Bonnie D. Graham for promoting this show on her show, Long Island's Dating, Friday nights at 6. Big thank you to Caldwell Titcomb for being my desk, my guest pardon, and talking theater. You can read a lot of his reviews of Boston and London theater on his no, not on his website, on the website, totaltheater.com. I hate having to rush at the end, but here you go. And thank you, one more thank you, of course, to my wife, Joyce. Kind of a tough week last week, but she's been pulling through with a lot of strength. And a strong thank you to all of you for listening. Be with me next week for the 52nd episode of Dave's Gone By, Monday night, November 17th at 6.30 p.m. Until then, don't miss your days going by. This is Dave Lefkowitz. Good night, cheers, where everybody knows our name and gone by.
2: Against the plural sun, against the morrow sky. And I will walk and talk, and God will go away with spring. I never, ever, ever, ever get so old again. Bien